It's, uh, it's wonderful to see this unusual combination of faces. Uh, first and second servicers united in their adoration of our Lord. It's wonderful. Uh, uh, we, we need to do more of this kind of thing, whatever, whatever it looks like. Uh, but it's great to, to intermingle like this and worship together as we were meant to do. Uh, I invite you to turn in God's Word to 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 21. 1 Kings 14, 21. Let me greet all those of you who are gathered with us this morning to worship our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Welcome. Uh, we're continuing uh, to work through Kings. Uh, the plan is to pause after today and move to the New Testament uh, to 1 Timothy. And uh, we'll spend some time in the New Testament, and then we will come back uh, uh, to 1 Kings and 2 Kings, and we'll look at the ministry of Elijah, Elisha, and so on. But just be aware that that turn is coming. So 1 Kings 14, 21 and following. Let's hear God's word together. <clears throat> now Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city that the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name, uh, to put his name there. His mother's name was Nama the Ammonite, and Judah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy with their sins that they committed more than all that their fathers had done. For they also built for themselves high places and pillars and asherim on every high hill and under every green, green tree. And there were also male cult prostitutes in the land. They did according to all the abominations of the nations that the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. In the fifth year of King Rehoboam, Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. He took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took away everything. He also took away all the shields of gold that Solomon had made. And King Rehoboam made in their place shields of bronze and committed them to the hands of the officers of the guard who kept the door of the king's house. And as often as the king went into the house of the Lord, the guard carried them and brought them back to the guard room. Now the rest of the acts of Rehoboam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of, of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam continually. And Rehoboam slept with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. His mother's name was Nama the Ammonite, and Abijam his son reigned in his place. Now in the 18th year of King Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, Abijam began to reign over Judah. He reigned for three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Mekah, the daughter of Abishalom, and he walked in all the sins that his father did before him. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem, setting up his son after him and establishing Jerusalem, because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and did not turn aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Now there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all the days of his life. The rest of the acts of Abijam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And there was war between Abijam and Jeroboam. And Abijam slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David, and Asa his son reigned in his place. In the twentieth year of Jeroboam king of Israel, Asa began to reign over Judah. And he reigned forty-one years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Mekah, the daughter of Abishalom, and Asa did what was right. Didn't see that coming, did you? He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as David his father had done. 
He put away the male cult prostitutes out of the land and removed all of the idols that his fathers had made. He also removed Mekah, his mother, from being queen mother because she had made an abominable image for the Asherah. And Asa cut down her image and burned it at the, at the brook Kidron. But the high places were not taken away. Nevertheless, the heart of Asa was wholly true to the Lord all his days, and he brought into the house of the Lord the sacred gifts of his father and his own sacred gifts, silver and gold and vessels. And we will consider the following verses in the message, but I won't read them now. We'll read to the end, of, we'll discuss to the end of Asa's reign. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, it is our confession this morning that you are light. You are good through and through, and there is not even a hint of evil or unrighteousness or wickedness in you. Lord, we rejoice in your perfect righteousness and holiness. And as your people, it is our earnest longing that we too, Lord, would share more and more in your holiness and put off the pollution and contamination of sin that our lives might reflect the beauty of your character. Lord, we confess that so often instead of walking in the purity, beauty, and righteousness that befits your people, we sin against you. We rebel against your word. We corrupt ourselves, sometimes knowingly, sometimes even unknowingly. And we ask this morning in the name of our mediator, our high priest, Jesus Christ, Father, take away our sins, take away our guilt, uh, forgive us for all the wrong that we have done this last week in the name of Jesus. Even those unknown sins, Lord, take them from us. Cleanse us for the sake of your son, Jesus. And Lord, we give you praise and thanks that there really is pardon for us in Jesus. And this morning, we together as your people receive that pardon, receive the forgiveness of our sins, and we rejoice in that pardon. We praise you for your grace and goodness. And we ask, Lord, that you would address us through your word this morning. Amen. Uh, most of you, perhaps all of you, are familiar with that old hymn, Amazing Grace. It's a hymn that underscores the astonishment, the, the singer's astonishment and amazement at the undeserved goodness of God. But what is it that makes grace amazing? Well, the first line helps us answer that question. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. He is amazed by the goodness of God precisely because he recognizes, recognizes his lostness, uh, his departure from God, or what the Bible calls sin. Sin means rebelling against the will of the Lord, a failure to conform to his law. And it's only when we understand the depth of our sin, the depth of our guilt before God, that we understand the depth of his grace and mercy. Where there are small views of sin, there are also small views of God's grace, small views of the gospel. And so if we are going to rejoice as we ought in God's grace in Christ, we need to better understand our sin. It's something that modern Christians even are sometimes reluctant to talk about. C.S. Lewis in his essay, uh, God in the Dock, observes, the early Christian preachers could assume in their hearers a sense of guilt. Thus the Chris Christian message was in those days unmistakably good news. It promised healing to those who knew they were sick. 
to, to revel in the goodness of the good news, you have to know you're a sinner. You have to know you're sick. And our passage today helps us see the hideousness, the wickedness, the vileness of sin more clearly. We'll consider these four things this morning as we look at our text. Number one, sin spreads aggressively. Sin spreads aggressively. Number two, sin is a rejection of God himself. Rejection of God himself. Three, sin ruins everything. Ruins everything. And finally, we'll consider God's answer to sin. So a little bit of context here is important. You may recall that the kingdom of Israel uh, splintered into two kingdoms, northern kingdom following Jeroboam. And we saw how that story went. Uh, Jeroboam led the people of God into idolatry. It's actually not that much better in the southern kingdom, which is ruled in the first instance by Rehoboam. Uh, what we see in this passage are uh, three kings of the southern kingdom. The first two basically overlap. Their reigns overlap with that of Jeroboam in the north. And then Asa begins a, a new era uh, for the southern kingdom. Uh, but, but as goes the north, we see, so goes the south. The story of Jer uh, Rehoboam's reign in the uh, southern kingdom is a story of increasing idolatry, the increasing worship of other gods. There is a spiritual decline that happens again, not just in the north, but also under uh, Rehoboam's rule also in the south. And what do you expect from the son of an Ammonite? I don't know if you caught that as we read. Uh, Rehoboam is the son not just of Solomon, but also of Nama the Ammonite. And intriguingly, she's mentioned twice, even at the end of this passage. His mother was an Ammonite. And so we see that the root of his idolatry is not simply Solomon's defection into the worship of other gods. It's also, it's also his uh, intermarrying with foreign women, women who have led his heart astray. His mother is devoted to another god, a false god. It's often the case that as the parents go, so go the children, which is why I never tire of exhorting parents and reminding myself of the need to disciple our children and raise them up in the fear and admonition of, of the Lord. And whatever else you do, if you're a parent, do that. Teach the, your kids to follow the Lord. So apparently, Rehoboam followed in the footsteps of Solomon at the end of his reign, but also in the footsteps of Nama the Ammonite. We're told that Rehoboam reigned in Jerusalem. And notice how it's, Jerusalem is characterized. The city that the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. Now it's interesting because the Lord places his name on the temple. He identifies with this temple that Solomon builds. This is the dwelling place of God among his people. And because the temple is in Jerusalem, Jerusalem becomes now the sacred dwelling place of God. God places his name not just on the temple, but on the city. Jerusalem is his city. It is the dwelling place of God among his people. What a privilege. God drawing near to Judah and Judah's king and saying, I'm going to dwell in your midst. And how does Judah, how does her king respond to this privilege? By turning and worshiping other gods. The more of the mercies and privileges and blessings of God that we have tasted, the worse our sin is. The more of God's goodness and privilege you've experienced in your life, the worse your sin is, the deeper your ingratitude. 
Judah has been uniquely blessed among the tribes of Israel. The king has been uniquely blessed that he rules in God's own city, the place he's put his name on. And how does he respond to that privilege? Through idolatry and disobedience. Israel is on a downward slide. It's amazing how quickly from the reign of Solomon, sin has spread among the people of God. We find it's not just Solomon who is now worshiping other gods with his foreign wives. We find in verse 22 that Judah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. The idolatry, the worship of other gods is spreading rapidly among God's people. Uh, We find that they built for themselves high places and pillars and asherim, goddess of fertility, on every high hill and and under every green tree. Idolatry is proliferating in the land. You see symbols of pagan worship everywhere now among God's people. Sin is not easy to contain, is it? Idolatry is not easy to contain. It spreads like a virus, moves quickly from one person to another. And it not only multiplies among God's people, it intensifies, it becomes more potent. Look at this statement in verse 22. Uh, We are told that Judah provoked him to jealousy, God, with their sins that they committed more than all that their fathers had done. Man, I mean, you, you read what their fathers had done, and that's a significant statement. Sin and idolatry has intensified among God's people. They're worse off than even their forefathers. And not only that, they're becoming Canaanites, verse 24. They did according to all the abominations of the nations that the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. Judah, the people of God, is becoming indistinguishable from the Canaanites around her. The very Canaanites that were judged by God through his people Israel. One scholar puts it, there's a Canaanization happening of Israel. We see the canonization of Israel. They are becoming less and less like the holy people they were called to be and more and more like the Canaanites who are judged by God. And indeed, there's an implicit warning, isn't there, that if they continue down this path, judgment awaits them. But what we see is the spread of sin, but also the intensification of sin. The idolatry is getting stronger. They are becoming more and more like Canaanites. It's fascinating, isn't it, to note that Solomon went bad at the end of his reign. His final years were characterized by the worship of other gods. And you go from that to, in what, 20 years' time, 15 years' time, under the reign of Rehoboam, to this kind of total collapse. Notice the speed with which idolatry gains momentum and with uh, speed with which sin gains momentum. It's not like a, like a stone rolling slowly down a grassy hill. It's like a stone falling off a cliff. There's a sudden and precipitous drop. And that's what we see is happening here with sin. It moves aggressively, quickly. It intensifies. And so what we should note as we consider this passage is the power of sin to make slaves of us. The power of disobedience to God to master us and control us. Sin is not one of those things you can say, I'm going to go this far but no further. I'm going to sin a little bit and then I'm going to stop. What you find is that sin drags you down far deeper than you ever thought that you would go. You're horrified by the person that you've become. You think that you're stepping into a placid lake. In fact, you're stepping into a rushing river, surging river that takes you far further than you ever thought that you would go. Sin is not something you can tame or manage. It is something that masters you. 
You know how it is when you lose your temper and respond with a violent outburst of anger towards someone? It gets so much easier to do it again the second time. Easier still the third time. With every act of sin, sin's grip on your life tightens. That first click of the, of the mouse to look at filthy images on the internet, you have to overcome some moral resistance, but that second time is easier. The third time, easier still, and sin wraps itself around us and chokes the life out of us. Uh, I don't know how many of you are familiar with Robert Louis Stevenson's uh, little novel, uh, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll. I read it recently. Uh, man, what a great read. Uh, dark, but interesting. Um, in that particular novel, uh, there's this distinguished scientist, Dr. Henry Jekyll, who concocts a potion that essentially opens the door to all of his darkest impulses and desires. When he takes that potion, Dr., the respectable Dr. Henry Jekyll is transformed into a vile creature of pure evil ca called Edward Hyde. There is, uh, Hyde is not restrained by conscience or any principle of morality. He is pure evil and he acts on his wicked impulses. He enjoys his wickedness. And Dr. Jekyll, when he wants to engage in some disreputable behavior, and he doesn't want to be caught doing that, what does he do? He takes his potion and he becomes Edward Hyde. And under the guise of Edward Hyde, he goes and does what he wants to do. And then he wants, when he wants to stop being Hyde and become again the respectable Dr. Jekyll, he takes his potion and bam, he's back. And it's fun and he enjoys it. Because he can basically do what he wants with impunity. No one will know. They'll chalk it up to Hyde, not to the honorable Jekyll. But he wakes up one morning and he looks at his hand and he goes, huh, that's not my hand. That's not my hand. And he, looks at, he steps into the mirror and he realizes that even without taking the potion, he's become Hyde. He has spontaneously been transformed to Hyde without wanting to. And this begins to happen more and more. He spontaneously turns into Hyde. He thought that he was controlling Hyde through the usage of the potions, but he discovers to his horror that actually Hyde is controlling him. He gets to the point where he can't even sleep without waking up as Hyde. Jekyll is being swallowed up by Hyde. He is going to go, and he is going to become Edward Hyde. Edward Hyde triumphs. He thought he was in control, but at the last, when it was too late, he realizes that it, he is going to become Edward Hyde. And that's how sin operates. We've got it under control. We're only going to go this far. But then it takes us so much further than we ever thought we would go, and we're horrified by the people we become, by the things that come out of our mouths, of the things we become capable of that we never dreamed we'd, be cap uh, we'd become capable of. Uh, sin distorts us, uh, transforms us into a, th this kind of hideous, repulsive creature. So when, when we recognize this then, uh, the, when we recognize sin's tendency to do this, to master us, uh, we need to take sin far more seriously than we do. We need to not say to ourselves, ah, oh, no big deal, I'll go this far, but it won't take me any further. Sin always takes you further than you want to go. Second thing you want to notice about sin, and this passage teaches us to note about sin, is that sin multiplies. One sin leads to another. 
One sin leads to another. It doesn't stay still. It's like a virus. Uh, Cornelius planting on his book on sin makes this observation, captures that point well. He gives this example. A high school girl watches television when she should be studying and snaps at a parent who gestures toward her unopened books. The next afternoon, she cheats on her first semester exams. Then, feeling irritable, she gets drunk with her friends, gossips more maliciously, maliciously than usual about an acquaintance they all dislike, and blood alcohol levels still rising, aggressively drives her mother's car home. Indeed, she drives it partway through the end of the family garage. Afterwards, she doesn't feel like studying. He says, notice the way laziness leads, leads that girl to snap at her parents, to cheat on the exam, which causes her to be irritated and frustrated and maybe indulge more in alcohol than she otherwise would have. And then she gossips maliciously and destroys property. And all of this, this compounding evil makes her even more lazy. She's, she's far more reluctant to want to study at the end of all this than she was at the beginning. This is how sin works. One sin leads to another. When you go to bed angry with your spouse, your heart fuming with frustration against them, and you wake up in the morning and you don't say a word to them, and you go into your bathroom to get ready for the day, and you give them the silent treatment. And of course you're not going to pray, because you don't pray in that kind of condition. And of course you're not going to read scripture, because you don't read scripture in that kind of condition. But you, in your anger, rush out the door, and that, and that frustration smolders throughout the day and fills you with self-pity because you have such a wretched marriage. And in that spiritual condition, far from God, smoldering with frustration, full of self-pity, uh, you find yourself intrigued by that attractive coworker who seems to get you and hang on every word that you say, and so it goes. Sin leads to sin. What should our response be? Recognizing that it overpowers us, recognizing that it multiplies, how should we respond? Well, the first thing we should do is take Jesus' words to heart. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. The Bible calls us to vigilance against sin. When we first see it stirring, when we first see that thought drifting in the wrong direction, or our eyes drifting in the wrong direction, we need to attack it. Attack it while it's still in the egg before it has a chance to hatch and swallow us alive and kill us. Kill sin or it will kill you. We need to live a life of prayer in the presence of God so we're sensitive to our sin. We need to pray against our sin. And we need, we need to do what the Puritans uh, used to describe as mortification. Killing sin. Actively praying against it. Uh, noticing its first stirrings and refusing to go there. And in addition, when we do fall, because we will, because Jesus, only Jesus is perfect, when we do fall into sin, it's important to repent quickly. To come to your senses and say, Lord, what am I doing? This is evil. Forgive me. Give me grace not to go down this path again. We see what happens when we, when we don't repent. When we allow a sin to go unaddressed, it leads to other sins. The only way to break out of that vicious cycle is to come before God, come to our senses, confess our sins, seek forgiveness, and turn from it. That's the only thing that stops the slide towards increasing wickedness. So it's remarkable how quickly idolatry, worship of other gods, sin spreads in Judah, and how quickly it intensifies. Second thing then to see here 
is that sin is finally a rejection of God himself. Look at verse 22. Judah did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Contrary to modern assumptions about the relationship of human beings and morality, human beings don't create right and wrong. They don't define right and wrong. Society doesn't define right and wrong. God is judge of all the living, and God determines what is right and what is wrong. We don't create morality, we discover it. Because God himself establishes what is right and wrong according to his character. So this thing that they're doing is fundamentally evil in his sight. And then we're told they provoked him to jealousy with their sins that they committed. And we read that and it should give us pause. Uh, part of the reason it might give us pause is because we normally think of jealousy as a completely wicked emotion, right? A jealous husband is the husband whose insecurity allows him to be excessively um, possessive and uh, excessively worried about where his wife is at all times, right? Like that's the kind of jealousy we think of when we think of jealousy. And of course, there is such a thing as bad jealousy. We'd all acknowledge that. But have you ever stopped to consider the fact that there is such a thing as a good, virtuous jealousy? If you see your spouse beginning to drift in their affections away from you towards someone else, is it right for you to go, oh, well, we've had a good run? Is that love? No, there is something legitimately possessive about love. When you see your spouse drifting, there, there should be a jealousy. That, that's what love looks like in that specific situation where, no, the love that you committed towards me, like I have a claim on that, I want that, redirect that. Wives, when you see a woman uh, honing in on your husband, right, there's a legitimate, possessive, godly jealousy that says, no way, right, no thank you. That's what love looks like. And apathy in that situation would actually not be loving at all. So there is a good possessiveness, a godly possessiveness, a legitimate jealousy. And this is similar to that. When it says God is jealous, that you have to remember these are his people, not only because he created them and he's their creator, uh, but he's their, he's their savior. He delivered them from Egyptian captivity. He made them his people. He has covenanted with them. He is their God and they are his people and there is a special bond between them. He is faithful to them and he calls them to a, a, a reciprocal loyalty to himself. Calls them to center all of life on him and give him the worship that is his due. And so when he sees his people drifting from the worship of the true God to false gods, he doesn't just sit apathetically by. This is a great act of wickedness whereby they are rejecting their creator and savior and redirecting their heart's love and devotion to something other than God. It is right and good that God should be angered by their sin and judge it as we will see in this passage. But what's clear from the Lord's response is that sin is never a matter of simply violating an impersonal law. Sin is always personal. Sin is always the rejection of a person. Behind every lie, behind, behind every capitulation to lust, behind every slanderous word that we speak, there is a rejection of the living God. We are through our disobedience saying to God, you are not worthy of my worship and obedience. I'm gonna do what I want to do and my way is best. We see this in Psalm 51, don't we? David's great penitential psalm where he confesses his sin before God because of what he has done with Bathsheba and Uriah. But interestingly, he says in Psalm 51, 
as he's praying to God, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is wicked in your sight. Now that's a strange statement given the, the fact that he's brought about the death of a man, committed adultery with, the, with his wife, Bathsheba. What does he mean, against you, you only have I sinned? And the point is that our sin is fundamentally against God himself. We don't measure the hideousness of sin mainly by its horizontal consequences as painful as those can be. We gauge the awfulness of sin by considering the greatness of the God against whom we've sinned against. That's the real measure of sin. We have rejected our creator. We have said, you are not worthy of my worship and I'm going to put something else at the center of my life. At the core of sin is an act of contempt for the living God. And God is right and he is good to punish wickedness. God is right and good to judge us for our failure to honor him for all that he is. And when you recognize that the, the, the essence of sin is this personal rejection of God, this failure to honor him as God, um, it shows us what we're doing when we repent. The fundamental reason to turn from sin, to grieve over our sin, is that by sinning I have dishonored my Father in heaven. I've treated him with contempt. And I want to turn back from this wickedness because it is my heart's desire to honor my God and Savior. That's the fundamental reason to repent. There are many others, but that's the fundamental reason. And we should be careful. Like, if you find that you're consistently repenting, like you're grieved about your sin and you want to turn from sin, not mainly because you've offended God or you've dishonored him, but mainly because you don't want life to get hard. You don't want God to take away blessings. You enjoy life and the good things of life, and you want to keep those good things going, and you see sin legitimately as a threat to those good things. And so you repent and you seek forgiveness, not mainly because you care about honoring God, but you care about holding on to your stuff, to the good things of life. That's an indication that your heart is idolatrous that the fundamental thing for you is actually not God at all, but it's what God gives you. The thing that should eat us up about sin is that we have dishonored our God in heaven. So what about you as you look at your own repentance? Is it mainly driven by fear of what you will lose, fear of life getting hard, or is it mainly driven by sorrow for bringing dishonor to the name of the Lord? Third thing to notice about this passage is that sin ruins everything. So we see Judah's sin spreading, intensifying, deepening. The Lord is not pleased and judgment comes. We see, if you compare these verses, 25 through 28, with the descriptions of life under Solomon's reign, the contrast is very striking. We're told that Shishak, king of Egypt, shows up against Jerusalem. And it's not clear that he actually plundered the city of Jerusalem, the royal city. Apparently, he was bought off. Rehoboam uh, takes the treasures that exist in the temple and in his own palace, and he gives them to the king of Egypt and says, go away, please. But what a far cry this is from the golden age of Solomon, when no one dared mess with the people of God, when uh, it was the other nations that were intimidated by Israel and not the reverse. But things have changed in Judah. It is now the people of God who tremble at their foes. They are no longer enjoying the freedom that they once had. They are intimidated by these powerful foreign nations around them. 
And then we're told that these golden shields that Solomon had, had made uh, were given to Pharaoh, and they are replaced with these bronze shields. Conspicuous decline. Kenem, every time you took up one of those bronze shields, I suspect you couldn't help but remember the golden shields that were once there. And they're emblematic of a change in, Israel, in Judah's fortune. There was a golden era under Solomon. Every man sat comfortably under the shade of his own fig tree. The people of God ate and drank and were happy. That's the language that's used to describe the Solomonic era. There's trade, there's adventure. This is a, a time of joy and blessing on God's people. It's a golden era. But because of their idolatry and rebellion against the Lord, that golden era has become bronze. Life doesn't have that same expansiveness, joy, that it did under Solomon. Things have contracted. And then finally, at the end of this description of Jeroboam's reign, we are told that there was incessant war between him and Rehoboam. And Solomon's reign, we're told several times that it was a time of rest, a time of peace, a time where you can live and let others live and enjoy life. But now uh, Judah's existence is marred by this incessant conflict. There's this uncertainty, there's this constant warfare that has been unleashed. Why has all of this happened? Why has life diminished in every conceivable uh, domain? Well, it's because of Judah's sin and idolatry. Because she has rejected the Lord, everything in life begins to wither. Everything that sin touches turns to ash. Cornelius Plantinga, the author I mentioned earlier, makes this observation about the biblical concept of shalom, which we often translate as peace. He says there's actually much more going on in shalom. He says, in the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. And we catch a glimpse, a little glimpse under Solomon's reign of what that might look like, the way things ought to be. But because of their idolatry and rebellion, they forfeit shalom. Everything declines. And when you're tempted by sin, you need to recognize this. When sin whispers in your ear, you need to remember that this threatens to jeopardize everything that makes life worth living. Every good thing that your soul holds dear is threatened by this temptation. It will take you far further than you ever expected to go. We, sin comes to us like that wriggling worm comes to the fish. The fish sees the worm, thinks that there's a tasty bite of worm just around the corner, it clamps down and it gets a metal hook uh, in the roof of its mouth. That's how sin operates. There's the promise of pleasure but life becomes truly bitter on the other side of it. And the things that we love and hold dear and make life worth living are sacrificed on the other side of that rebellion. Sin ruins everything. What a bleak sermon it would be if we stopped there, no? Uh, <laughs> curtain close. Um, what does Paul say? Let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Like that, that would be the view of life that we would legitimately have if there was only our sin and the reality of divine judgment in front of us. But praise be to God, there's more to be said. 
This passage shows us not only not only how wretched life under sin is, but it also points us to God's solution to the problem of sin. After, after, we, get to, after we finish with Rehoboam, we get to his son, Abijam. And if we're looking for a corner to be turned, we're disappointed. Because Abijam continues in his father's footsteps, continues in the same idolatrous trajectory. Interestingly, we're told that in contrast to Rehoboam, whose dynasty is pretty much cut off as quickly as it begins. Last week, Randy took us through that passage where judgment is pronounced on the dynasty of the northern kingdom, right? He's not going to have a son to follow him because of his wickedness. Um, in contrast to all that, we're told that even though Abijam and Rehoboam before him, even though these are great sinners, God has still preserved a Davidic king in Jerusalem. And not because that's a good guy, as we've seen, he's an idolater. He's not a good guy, but God's going to preserve a king in Jerusalem because of his word to David. God told David that he's always going to leave a lamp, a descendant to Jerusalem. And because of his word, to which God is faithful, he allows the Davidic king to continue, even though he's not worthy of being a king. The encouragement for us is twofold. Number one, God always keeps his promises. They're rock solid. You can build your life on them. But number two, the sins of God's people can't, can't keep the word of God, the promises of God, and the plan of God from being accomplished. Maybe when you look at yourself and the people around you, sometimes it's like, what chance do we have? Um, I hope you're not that cynical. Um, but the encouragement of this passage is even despite the sins of the people of God, even despite their wickedness, God's, God's word is still being accomplished. He's keeping a, a king on the throne of David. But as I say, Abijam is a dead end. After a brief period of time, three years, he ceases to rule and he is replaced, uh, it appears, by his son, Asa. Now, if you were writing this history and you didn't know what came next and you had to describe Asa's reign, what would you write if you had to come up with it from scratch? Well, you'd probably say, you'd probably say uh, you know, the, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. We saw this with Rehoboam. We saw this with Abijam. Of course, Asa is going to be another wretched idolater who further compounds the guilt and sin of the people of God. That's what we might expect. That's the way things generally go. But we come to Asa, and out of nowhere, we read, he reigned 41 years in Jerusalem, and Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. It's intriguing because we're, like, we're not told how this happened, right? It's, we're not told there was, a, there was a priest who was faithful to God who took the young Asa aside and taught him the law, right? We're not given any explanation for how, for how this happens. There's just uh, an Ammonite great-grandmother, an idolatrous grandfather, an idolatrous father, and then a righteous king. Out of darkness, light. Something from nothing like a thunderbolt of grace from a blue sky, comes out of nowhere, we see that God has raised up, according to his goodness, a righteous king. And there's no reason to have expected one in light of the wickedness of his uh, predecessors. So Asa comes on the scene, unexpected, unlooked for. And what does he do? He reverses all of the wicked decisions made by his forefathers. He is the scourge of false worship. He takes down uh, the idols. He removes the uh, cult prostitutes from the land. And he even, th this is a real measure of his devotion to the Lord, deposes the queen mother from her honored position. 
When you can stand up to your mom, right, Get put her off the throne out of your allegiance to the Lord because she's worshiping another God. Like that's a real test of your loyalty to the Lord and that's exactly what he does. He deposes the queen mother and his heart, like David's, is wholly true to the Lord. Where did he come from? Now, we, we acknowledge that he's not perfect. The story goes on to describe how uh, his kingdom was threatened uh, by Basha, the northern king, uh, he was fortifying the city of Ramah, threatening to cut off traffic with the city of Jerusalem. So what does Rehoboam do? Well, he appeals to the king of Syria. He says, take all the treasures from the, from the temple, take all the treasures that we have, give them to the king of Syria so he'll break his covenant with Basha and then bring us relief. And, and the plan works out. So the king of Syria comes, Basha's in trouble, he stops building the city, and then Asa and the people of Judah come and take the stones of uh, Ramah away where, the, where this fortification was being built. Uh, how do we interpret that? Well, I think one clue is to compare that to what uh, Rehoboam does. What, is, what does Rehoboam do when Shishak sh shows up? He takes the treasures and gives them to the Egyptian king. And I think the parallel with Rehoboam suggests that this is not a, an act motivated by faith. And this is actually confirmed by Second Chronicles that explicitly says this is an act of unbelief. So Asa is flawed. Yes, we recognize that. And yet still, the, the assessment of his reign in this passage is that it's positive. That there was a basic heart-level allegiance to the Lord, his lapse in this situation notwithstanding. Judah has drifted far from God. She is sinking deeper and deeper into idolatry. She can't bring herself back to the pure worship of the Lord. And so what does God do? How does he arrest the spiritual decline of his people? He sends a king. He sends a king by grace, unlooked for, undeserved, who comes to the wayward, rebellious people of God and brings them back to the Lord, institutes the reforms that they need. And what Asa does here partially and imperfectly, our Lord Jesus Christ, the ultimate king, does perfectly. The eternal Son of God became flesh, became like one of us. He is God's King, and He has come into the world to do, in a manner of speaking, what Asa did to chase those who are too far gone to ever come back to God. It's not our initiative that brings us back into a relationship with God. The Good Shepherd comes looking for the lost sheep of God. He looks for them under every bush and in every trench. He comes into the world to bring back the people of God. He comes unlooked for and unasked for. The initiative is all on God's side and on the side of God's king. Matthew 1.21, the angel tells Joseph this. Speaking of Mary, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. God's king comes into the world, an act of sheer grace, and he comes looking for us. It's not that we look for him. The initiative is on his side. His heart, in contrast even to Asa, is characterized by a perfect devotion and love for God. Every step of the way, our Lord submits to God, even to the point of yielding his life as a sacrifice for ours. At the cross, Jesus endured not only the indignity and horror of crucifixion, but the final horror of being separated from the life-giving presence of God. At the cross, Jesus absorbed the wrath and judgment that a holy God pours out on sinners. And because he stood condemned in our place and rose again on the third day, 
there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. Jesus is the one and the only one who can take away this terrible guilt of sin and the wrath that accompanies it. All those who look to Jesus and trust in him as their savior receive pardon from a life of contempt for the living God. They are pardoned from all, for all their iniquity and sins and reconciled to God. Jesus does what no one else could do and take away the terrible guilt of sin. Yet it's also Jesus who destroys the power of sin over us. We saw how sin tightens in grip, its grip over us and we know this experience well. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. And notice the purpose, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Like we might have expected he, he died on the cross so we could be forgiven, and that's true, praise God. But notice what it says, He himself bore our sins, sins in his body on the tree. For what purpose? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. In other words, through his death and resurrection, not only are you pardoned for your sin so you can have a relationship with God, but you are actually empowered to live a new and holy life. Another way to say it is your relationship as a Christian to sin is not what it used to be as an unbeliever. The power or dominion of sin over your life has been broken. Yes, we're still tempted, but at any given moment of temptation, because we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, it is possible to say no to sin and yes to God. Jesus liberates us from the guilt of sin and its power over us. And yes, Jesus is the one who renews our lives and reverses the detrimental effects of sin. 2 Corinthians 3, 18, And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. We, we, we go from being Jekylls into Hydes. Jesus turns hides into, no, yes, turns hides into jekylls. There it is. We deform ourselves through our sin, become hideous and loathsome even to ourselves. But Paul says that through Jesus Christ, we are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. We are becoming human again. We are increasingly reflecting the beautiful character of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. As we walk to him, look to him, see his glory, we are increasingly like him. Our deepest need is to be rid of the pollution of sin, the guilt of sin, and the power of sin. And the Bible teaches that in Jesus Christ, God has made provision for all of that. Jesus does all of it. So if this morning you have not trusted in Jesus as your savior, if you're still in bondage to sin, separated from God, the message of our text is clear, trust in God's Savior. Trust in the one who can make you clean in the eyes of God. If this morning you have trusted in Jesus, be glad for the forgiveness of your sins. But we recognize that even as believers, sometimes the struggle against sin is bitter and hard. And there are seasons where we can be discouraged at our lack of progress. This text is saying to you, don't lose heart. Jesus breaks the power of sin as much as he takes away the guilt of sin. You know what that means? That means that in faith you press on you don't lose heart, you keep fighting. You keep fighting against that irritability, against that lust, against whatever it is that keeps knocking you down. In faith, that as you walk with Jesus and look to him, the victory will come. It may not have come yet, and the battle may be difficult, but it will come. So don't lose heart, keep looking to Jesus. Jesus is God's final answer to the problem of sin. And as we look to him, 
and walk to him, we experience increasing freedom to be what God would have us to be. We're encouraged by this passage to press on in faith. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that when we were dead in our sins and trespasses and could not even ask for a Savior, you came to us. You took the initiative to give us a king who would heal us of our unrighteousness and bring us back to you. Oh Lord, we pray that we would be amazed by your grace. We pray that our hearts would soar this morning with adoration in light of who you are and what you have done. Amen.